0: Activated, and turned or scrolled to Genesis chapter 29. Thank you for being here this evening. I hope that you've had a good day. Thank you for so enthusiastically singing throughout the day. It has been a good day. It's been good for me to be here with you. And I trust that it has been good for you To sing together, to pray together, to learn together, to remember together, to be challenged together. What better way to get our minds and our hearts focused for this new week that our Father in heaven, the solid rock, is providing to us. There are chapters of the Bible that as you read them, you learn them, maybe over the course of years, you revisit them off and on that you simply cannot imagine preaching a sermon from. And I see Roger shaking his head this way. He may be concerned. I'm not sure. We'll see. Genesis 29 and Genesis 30, for me, I I am sure that uh, in even recent years, I'm I'm not sure what I would have done as far as a sermon is concerned. And I don't know exactly what it was. Having spent some time with Jacob last Sunday evening, he he continued to be on mine. Of course, our daily Bible reading took us through these two chapters this past week. I I think it was probably our theme for the year. We have spent so much time in so many different ways looking at this, this precious call and challenge to rise and build our summer series, how firm a foundation I I think probably what pushed me over the top is idolatry has been on my mind a lot in recent weeks as we've been preparing material for our building blocks track of studies we're exploring throughout the month of October what is idolatry and I've had all of these things swirling around in my mind and so I like many of you sat down just a few days ago and I read Genesis 29 and and the next day I came to Genesis chapter 30 and and they are not the sort of chapters that make you feel good they are not the sort of chapters that just fill you with gladness and optimism about human beings but the more that I I thought about these chapters it just seemed like a good time in light of everything that we have been talking about to spend a little bit of time with open Bibles there. I've, I've subtitled that up uh, at the top of your handout, the 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 great baby race. I grew up in this era where you heard all about the the nuclear arms race that was just escalating and escalating on various sides. And the, the basic theory was every time one would get a new kind of missile, a bigger missile, well, the other side would make more and even bigger and faster and just constantly going back and forth trying to one-up the other side and heating up what was known as the Cold War. And and you you came to hear these terrify, terrifying phrases like mutual assured destruction. There wasn't anything good that came from this nuclear arms race. Well, that, that's what I thought of with Genesis 29 and 30. It was a... A baby race of sorts. And it starts with Leah. We don't have the time to rehearse all of her story. I'd encourage you, if you haven't, to go back and and to read Genesis chapter 29. I don't know about you, maybe you had more context or more maturity growing up, but I had a tendency when I would hear of various figures in the Bible to think, well, that was the good one and that was the not so good one. And and for a very long time, I, I'm i not sure why, I had it in my mind that, well, uh, the, the good stuff came through Rachel. Rachel must have been the good one and Leah must not have been as good in, in, in some respect. But I've got to tell you, as... As the father of three daughters, I feel really sorry for Leah. Leah was the wife that Jacob didn't want. She was the wife that was given to him in exchange for seven years worth of labor by her father Laban. And Jacob, you might remember, thought that he was marrying her sister Rachel, but in fact it was Leah. And he he did not discover that until after the fact and almost instantly. You get the sense that Leah is on the outside looking in. But at the end of Genesis chapter 29, Leah becomes a central figure. Would you read it with me beginning in verse 31 that tells us. Just listen to this description. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Can you imagine being in that situation? She didn't ask for this. She didn't seek this out. And yet she's married to a man and she's got a a, a sister. And and all of this is just toxically beginning to boil up. and, And the best way to describe her unfortunate situation is she's hated. And the Lord sees this, he opens her womb, but her younger sister Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. You and I, we get a lot lost as this is translated to English, and so I've done my best to help you out a little, help me out a little on the screen and also on your screen. Your handout, Reuben in Hebrew literally means, see, a son. And you listen to her as she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. How sad. It goes on. In verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Heard. Simeon is how we have it translated into English. And in the 34th verse of the chapter, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time, my husband will be attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was attached, Levi. But then, as best I can tell, something special happens. In verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son. And no longer is it, now maybe my husband will love me. Maybe this time my husband will be attached to me. This time it is praise. This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And maybe it it would be nice if that's where it all stopped. But if you know anything about the story, you know that it doesn't stop there we've got a chapter break of course in the original that has been delivered to us there's no chapter break here we've got it as chapter 30 and verse 1 when rachel the the younger sister the favored one, the one that Jacob had had in mind all along as he agreed to work for seven years, and then an additional seven years for Rachel. When this younger sister sees that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And so a a plan is hatched. I'll give him my female servant named Bilhah. And so in Genesis 30 and verse 5, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. And again, as best I can tell, it's not that, well, I'm on the the wrong side of this. It's, it's, look at how I've been vindicated, at least in her own eyes. Look at what I've been able to make happen. He's heard my voice and and given me a son, and so she called his name Judged, or Dan. In English. And then in verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. You see, Rachel isn't the good one necessarily here. I've wrestled with my sister I was the favorite all along now two sons have been born I'll I'll call his name wrestling just to remind her who the winner here is and I don't know if it's this that took Leah's mind off of this time I will praise the Lord or Or what it was but the great baby race just takes off from there Leah decides in verse 9 she has ceased bearing children and so she takes her servant Zilpah and gives her to Jacob as a wife in verse 10 Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said good fortune has come so she called his name Gad, And then in verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. And I I can't prove it, but doesn't it seem like two sisters are just taunting each other back and forth? I mean, you look at the meaning of these names. Look at how happy I am now. She calls his name Asher. And then, I'll just be really honest with you, for reasons that I can't explain, and, and were I the one writing this story, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've, this is not where it would go if I was the author. But in Genesis 30 and verse 14 in in the days of wheat harvest Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah then Leah or Rachel said to Leah please give me some of your son's mandrakes but she said to her is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband would you take away my son's mandrakes also Rachel said then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes this is how small and petty and twisted this has all become. Jacob comes in to the field. His first wife, Leah, says, I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. God listened to Leah in verse 17. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Everybody believes they're on the right, the justifiable side of this whole mess. And in verse 19, Leah conceived again. She bore Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, Zebulun, because I have borne him six And then I know, if I was the one writing this story, I wouldn't have included this last chapter. In verse 22, we read that God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She calls his name Joseph. Which means, may he add. No note of thanks there. No impressions of praise there. Just, I want more. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 35, this complicated. Twisted baby race finally reaches its conclusion. Years later, where in Genesis 35 and verse 16, the family is journeying from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name ben Oni. Again, lost on us in English. But literally, son of my sorrow. I don't know what goes through your mind as you read Genesis 29 and 30. Maybe I was just, I don't think I was. <laughs> Maybe I was just having a pessimistic week. Genesis 29 and Genesis 30 Just makes me sad. What in the world do you do with this mess? That's recorded right there in the heart of the very first book of the Bible. You know, sometimes I, I talk with people, and I'm sure uh, perhaps you've felt this way. I know that I have. Perhaps you talk with others who feel this way. That, Well, I will, I will never be able to reach the level of spiritual commitment and faith and maturity of people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And, and could I just give you a little nudge this evening that if that's how you feel, you, you need to go back and read Genesis. Because these were not superhuman heroes of faith. At times they they walk and act with great faith, but they were all too human. I mean, this is the stuff of mid-afternoon soap operas. So what do you do with this? Would you open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19? The more that I reflected on this, I just jotted down a couple of basic takeaways. And and the first of those was the beauty and the simplicity of God's original design for marriage. I mean, when we remind ourselves of Genesis 29 and Genesis 30, is it any wonder that scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees would have difficult things that they would cook up in their minds like, well, you've got a a man with a wife and and that that man dies and then his brother comes along and marries that wife and then it happens over and over and over again seven times over and and so Jesus we want to know in the resurrection whose wife will she be well things like that weren't just springing out of human imagination It's no wonder that at times religious authorities who were intimately acquainted with these ancient texts. this was their story that they would come up with questions difficult questions about marriage and divorce and remarriage and the complexity that 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 all human beings seem to add to this whole equation but in Matthew chapter 19 how thankful we ought to be, that we don't have the commentary of some Jewish rabbi that we got to worry about, well, who was he influenced by, where did he go to school, who was talking in his ear, what law commentaries did he read, did he, did he really understand what he was talking about? This is God himself, God's own Son who cut through all of the mess that human beings are so good at making and just took us back to the beginning. And so powerfully asked in Matthew 19 and verse 4, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Doesn't a mess like this hopefully reinforce for us The beauty and the simplicity of one man, one woman, for life. Number two, you go with me a little deeper in your New Testament. To Philippians chapter 2. Doesn't this speak to the... Ugliness and the, the destructiveness of sibling rivalry. And we, we've got it on full ugly display in Genesis 29 and Genesis 30. And, and certainly there are lessons that need to be learned Therefore, literal, physical, fleshly brothers and, and sisters in the same biological family. But even bigger than that. The Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit of God, leads the Apostles to warn us about sibling rivalry in God's family. That this this may be a part of Jewish history. But this sort of thing has no place among brothers and sisters in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That wasn't those two sisters. Same love. That wasn't those four women and and that man. Being in full accord and of one mind. Listen to verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry. Or somehow we get it in our minds that if if I can make myself look better than you, somehow that means I'm more important. I deserve more attention. I deserve more applause. I deserve more praise. And maybe it's between literal siblings. Maybe it's within the context of of a church family. Let's... Let's see the ugliness that's recorded for us in Genesis 29 and 30. And then listen in as we are told as disciples of, of Jesus. Rivalry is a real thing. And that's how a whole lot of people in the world act. But you, you do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Two Really important lessons there. But before we're done, we need to make this more personal. Isn't this a a great window that's really a mirror that ought to, to lead us to ask, Who is my rock? What is my rock? We spent a little bit of time last Sunday night with Jacob. And, and Jacob is a fascinating story. If you're not reading it with us, I'd really, I mean it when I, I say I'm encouraging you to, to read it right along with us. Because we've got such a gradual maturing and refining and, and transformation. I mean, he goes from he cheats to one of the patriarchs of this entire family. But he's in search of a rock for a really long time. He leans on his mom as a rock, and that gets him in all sorts of trouble. And so he leans on himself to run away from his brother as a rock, his his brother's intent on killing him. And then he he leans on his uncle Laban for a little while as a rock, and that begins to sour. And then he, he leans on... These women as a rock. And there's a whole mess of things that that, that comes as a result of that. And every step of the way it's... Who is Jacob's rock going to be? But it's not just him. it's, It's these women. It's Leah who bears a son and says maybe now my husband will love me because of this, this rock of a son that I've been able to bear for him. Maybe this time my, my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons and then I've borne him six sons and so maybe now my husband will honor me and it's, it's Rachel who sees this and and she is so filled with envy and jealousy and hatred that she looks at her husband and says, give me a child or I'm going to die. It's not worth me living if I can't have this. What she, my own sister, has. And granted, in many ways, this is such a different culture than than what we're used to. But listen, the fundamental issue is absolutely the same. As fear and anxiety and disappointments surface in our life, where, where do we look for solid footing? I hear, I'm sure I've said at times, She's my rock. He's my rock. You ever heard one human being describe another human being that way? I I don't know what I would do without her. She's my rock. And I I get what's being said there. But I've lived long enough, and many of you have lived long enough, to see that, okay, she's my rock, and then, then she confesses some sin that I had no idea about or he's my rock and he's in serious trouble now for serious financial dishonesty or he's my rock and and he just lost his job and and we've got a mortgage or she's my rock but now she's sick and she's she's going to be sick for the rest of her life what now It's passages like Genesis 29 and 30 that hopefully remind us if our value and our stability is tied to a person or what that person is able to give us, what that person, how that person performs for us. And then that person reveals some area of vulnerability or they, they get just plain weak or they become filled with doubts and they start questioning God. What then? Who's my rock? If my meaning and, and my purpose, my, my security is grounded in a job title. And then it gets shaken. Shaken. Or if my contentment is tied to a house, and then it gets windblown, or my my happiness is tethered to a paycheck, and then the paycheck isn't there anymore, and I, I start drowning spiritually, or my, my satisfaction is linked to my health, or her health, or or his health. I find myself constantly swimming against the tide, or my faith is riding on the coattails of mom and dad, or my spouse, or... Even my own kids. And then something devastating happens. If a person is really your rock, it's probably only a matter of time before you get crushed by that rock. Whereas in Psalm 20, We read, for instance, verse 7. Some some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. Some trust in their marriages. Some trust in their their families, this great family tree that is blossoming right before their eyes. Some trust in the the neighborhood in which they live, the, the size of their paycheck. Some trust in the approval of others. Some trust in their ability to to control all the situations around them. Some trust in in their own performance. And the the busier they are, the more important and, and validated they feel. You see, the more things change, the more they stay. This is ancient and so very relevant. We trust. In the name of the Lord our God. Go with me quickly if you would to Colossians chapter 3. Perhaps that leads us to even before I am. And there are a variety of ways that that you can fill in that blank. Even before I am a husband. If I'm a Christian, I'm a son of God. Even before I am a wife. I am a a daughter of God. Even before I am an employee or an employer, I am a servant of the king, of all kings. Even before I'm a citizen of the United States of America, I, I am a servant of the kingdom of heaven. That's the mindset we're being called to have in Colossians 3 and verse 1, that if you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life, what is it? It's a really happy time right now in the life of our church family. Lots of weddings. Lots of anticipated weddings. Young person, I want you to listen to me carefully. Far more significant and eternally weighty than the day you get married was the day you became a part of God's family. And if you are not a disciple of Jesus you can plan the most beautiful, extravagant, Instagrammable, shareable wedding imaginable. But if you're not a part of the bride of Christ, you're missing the biggest piece of all. The moment you are welcomed into God's family as His heir through faith by Christ, In God's grace, that supersedes every single day to come. The day you have your first kid, the day you get married, the day you finally graduate, the day you get to move up to the corner office, whatever it is, the day you retire, doesn't matter. Your life is hidden with Christ. In God. And so come what may. As health is there and health declines. As paychecks are there and paychecks dwindle. As freedoms are enjoyed and freedoms are taken away. As life is full of sunshine and rainbows and life gets really, really, really hard. Before all of that other stuff. I'm a child of God, which means in the day of my trouble, I know who to seek. Psalm 77 is powerful because it, it is full of these inner wrestlings of the psalmist. And he, he asks a series of five rapid fire questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? various moments, that's Genesis 29 and Genesis 30, isn't it? But the reason that we have that psalm recorded is, is for statements like Psalm 77 and verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And so final thought for this evening. If God can make something beautiful out of that mess. He can make something beautiful out of me. And something beautiful out of you. I mean, that is an unmitigated mess up there. I, I, I touched base plenty of time before with Jordan, before this got shown on the screen to make sure all those text boxes didn't somehow get wonky. That's a mess. But I appreciate Roger bringing up this morning Habakkuk chapter 1. I appreciate Zach reminding us. Habakkuk 1 and verse 5. Look and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing, God says, a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Can you imagine if God had told Abraham before he died what his grandson was going to get caught up in? Can you imagine Rebecca, Jacob's mom, when she encourages him to run for his life because his his brother is so furious he's going to kill him the next time he sees him. Can you imagine her having any concept of when this son finally comes home 15 years later, what's going to be coming home with him? But those 12 sons... God uses to produce 12 tribes that become a united nation that spends more than 400 years in Egypt in slavery and then eventually is is delivered by God not because they were more numerous or virtuous or anything necessarily along those lines but because God chose to set them free. And he brought them to a land of promise. and Boy, did they make a mess of things. It's the story of your Old Testament. Boy, were there some dark, 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 dark times. But through that fourth son, whose name literally means praise, a great king would eventually be born. And that king's heirs would make an even bigger mess of things. But eventually, a royal heir was born to a young couple who couldn't afford the standard sacrifice. But that king, it was foretold, would eventually save his people And not just his people, but would extend salvation to all of the world. And that king wasn't like the kings of this world. He didn't ride up on a mountain and expect everybody to come up there and bow before him and and just pronounce from afar. This, This king touched people that nobody else would touch. He talked to other people that nobody else would talk to. He stooped down and and he washed the feet of his own short-sighted followers. And he gave his life as the lamb provided by God for the sins of all the world. And now we, we describe him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, God did something beautiful with this mess. And in many ways, that is the story of the Bible. Mess after mess after mess after mess. And maybe you can relate to that this evening. Maybe your life is messier than anybody in this room really knows. And you've been thinking and thinking and thinking that, well, if I can just get the right attachments, or if I can just get the right praise, or I can just get the right wages, or just get the right honor, if I can just wrestle long enough to outlast that obnoxious person, then good fortune will come my way, and I'll finally be happy. And then, God, would you add some more to all of that for me? And you recognize that that mess is your mess. Well, that is the reason that God's son gave his life 2,000 years ago. That's, that's the reason we know this story today. And so when people asked, having made the biggest mess of all, what shall we do? We, we crucified him. We crucified God's own son even that, that mess could be turned into something beautiful. As they were willing to repent of their sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, God's Son, washing those sins away. That blood stretches all the way to us right here and right now. And so if there's some mess that you know only God can make beautiful this evening. We would love it if you would make this invitation song personal and let us know how we can help you by coming to the front while we stand and sing together. <laughs>